Welcome to the MRI Cast. These podcasts focus on various current topics in MRI. We invite you to ask questions via the website and even suggest topics for future MRI casts. The opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect standards in clinical practices, nor should they be considered as medical advice. This program is made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Braco Diagnostics. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this MRI cast, which happens to be our 20th episode, by the way. And with me today is our all-time favorite badger, Dr. Howard Raleigh. How are you, Howard? I'm doing well, Bill. I'm glad to hear we're at 20. Uh, Next episode, I guess we can drink. (laughs) Yes, we can. We will be legal by then. And from the sprawling metropolis of Roswell, Georgia, is Kristen Harrington. Hello, Kristen. Hey, everybody. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm just dandy and looking forward to the next episode now that Howard's buying. So by far, the largest majority of MR systems in clinical use today are cylindrical bore 1.5 and 3 Tesla systems. So today, what we want to focus on are other types of MR systems or scanners. In other words, things that are not your mama's MRI scanner. We're going to maybe look a little deeper outside of the mainstream and some other things that are out there. So, but before we do that, let's get some terminology out of the way. And I know Kristen has some really strong feelings on this, and that is the term open MRI. I'm sure you've got something to say about that. I most certainly do. Uh, As you both know, I have a lot to say about a lot of things, but This is actually something that really um, frustrates me. Um, Bill and I, when we're at different facilities, they always say, well, we have an open uh, MRI across the street. And, you know, which implies that their cylindrical bore, um, horizontal bore magnet would be a closed MRI. Well, I'm pretty sure everybody on that's going to be listening to or on the, the podcast recognizes that that's completely untrue. And so it frustrates me because uh, a couple of reasons. Well, it's a marketing terminology. I was recently on a webinar and it was people from all over the world. And one of the people being interviewed had both, as they called it, open and closed MRIs. And someone from another part of the world said, what is an open MRI versus a closed MRI? And they said that in the chat box. And I really wanted to answer it, but I thought this is not my web webinar. This is stay out of it, Kristen. Come on, come on. You can do it. You can do it. Um, I really would like to see us. It's kind of like when we looked at the, um, the testing and we, we removed MR compatible Um, And just, you know, stuck with the MR safe, MR unsafe and MR conditional. I'd like to see us not say, not say open and closed. Um, They're marketing terms. Um, They are, um, if you're, if we're talking specifically about the vertical versus the horizontal, we can also talk about a transverse field if you'd like to in a second. Um, Let's, you know, let's refer to them for what they are. I also get a little frustrated that you know, people say, well, we like to do our larger patients on the open MRI. Well, Bill and I were discussing this earlier. 
Um, you know, actually, it's closer anterior to posterior on these patients that trying to be politically correct on a Friday that are circumferentially enhanced. Um, you know, it, it, it's around forty centimeters. It's it's not it's not a huge They're gap. About- now they're about forty-two. The, the ones that I'm. Oh my gosh, I'm everybody! Aware. I was off by two centimeters. Well, no, no, I'm saying. But <laughs> but here's the interesting thing about that, though. That's forty-two centimeters without the table in place. Oh, I mean, yeah, if you that, measure yeah, important, it, yes. measure it pole to pole, face to face, pole to pole, it's about forty-two or something like that, which is not a lot of not a lot of space when you put the table and the pad and the patient in there. Right. So, and I just think that, um, and then it specifically states in the instructions for use manual with these vertical field magnets that you must pad the patient anteriorly or you, you know, likely will suffer, um, you know, deleterious effects, i.e. burn of the patient. And so I've been in both. Um, I don't, I get a little anxious when I'm inside of a magnet in general. I can go ahead and just be open and honest with everyone on here. Um, and I actually feel as though I'm more confined when I'm in a vertical field than a horizontal field um, magnet. And so I would just like for us to to be the agents of change in the world, because does this annoy um, either one of you? What, your conversation or the term open or closed <laughs> MRI? Kristen, I've tried to keep an open mind. <laughs> Wow, you, well, I, you guys know what kind of morning I've had, and I'm I'm fine. I'm hit, you're hitting below the belt already, so you know I think you've brought up some important points because you know I've had a number of MRs myself, and you know it's it's not so much open or closed, but I think it's that distance, that, especially for the uh, circumferentially enhanced like myself. If I get in the MR PET machine where that bore comes down to something around sixty centimeters. And I'm in there for an hour and a half. It's uh, it's snug, let's say, and mm. you know, uh, uh, it's doable. But it wouldn't be doable if I have another uh, pandemic-related uh, f- food fest like I've had the last <laughs> year. <laughs> so, well, you know, when when starting, this is kind of want to go back to a little bit from a history standpoint here. Because when I started an MRI in, in 1985, the cylindrical bore magnets were at least the 1.5 Teslas were 55 centimeters. I mean, and that was that was tight. Um, you know, but we didn't. You know, we didn't really use the word. Uh, I forget when I started hearing "open" come into, into play. One of the things that irritates me is, and in fact, when I get a chance and I'm asked to consult with a device manufacturer to help them word the conditions of use is I like to get them to avoid the term because they will use the term. I've seen it in conditions of use, closed bore MRI system, which of course it's, you know, it's not true. I've had, had people call me, patients call me and say, you know, do you have an open system? And I've said, yes, got ma'am. I got two of them. They're both open on both ends. Great. Thank you. And the reality is that, patient population to whom they're marketing to doesn't understand what they're talking about anyway. When I worked at a site that had a vertical field, low field, vertical field magnet, 
walk the guy in the room. He looks at it and he goes, I thought, it was, I thought this was open. I said, you walked in, didn't you? I mean, it's, you know, the only time these things are closed is on New Year's Day. So, and, and, but I do think it's important to look at the field orientation because there's some safety implications that we can talk about later. So, yeah, for the purposes of our discussion here, we're going to use the term vertical and cylindrical bore magnet or something like that, horizontal field. Um, so what I wanted to go back to... to Early on in history, Howard, when you and I are about the same age, if not the same age, if I'm not mistaken, when did uh, when did you start working in MRI? Start walking around a magnet. What what year was that? It was around 1985, 86. Exactly the first year I was uh, went into MRI, late 85, early 86. Diasonics, I believe, is what we had first, and then we got some G signals. Well, you know, and so back then in 85, the most common systems out there were 0.35 cylindrical bore superconducting, and it was, Diasonics was one of the uh, brands. Another brand was by uh, Technicare, or Technoscare, as we like to call it, Um, and it was a 0.6 Tesla magnet. And... The 1.5 Teslas, when they were coming out, the marketing uh, for the lower field systems was something like this. Now, doctor, you don't want one of those 1.5 Tesla magnets. I mean, that's only going to be for research institutions. And look how strong that magnetic field is compared to this 0.3 or 0.6. And chemical shift, man, the chemical shift is much worse at higher field. Doctor, do you even know what chemical shift is and, you know, what that can do to you? I don't know, Howard, if you remember any of those kind of marketing ploys yes and certainly shift happens um at times uh, (laughs) in the mri all the time (laughs) but you know to be to be a little bit uh more kind to our our colleagues who market the open systems i mean it really does make a difference for some patients to at least psychologically have what they think is a more open uh system we we had one of the ge open speed 0.7 magnets and we put a window in the room so the whole experience seemed less claustrophobic whether the distance was actually smaller or not so i think there is a role for uh, you know some variety of less claustrophobic magnet for sure well the on the the, my experience with the vertical field, uh, especially the larger ones, uh, when you get up uh, you know, 0.35, 0.7, uh, Chris I know, has had some experience like 0.6 and 1.0 in her days working at Phillips. Uh, there are some actual clinical advantages to a vertical field design, and one of them is access to the patient. Uh, for any variety of reasons, but another one has to do with musculoskeletal imaging, in particular shoulders, and even the worst case, the worst thing to scan on a cylindrical magnet is an elbow. Um, you just can't, uh, you just can't on a horizontal field magnet. It's very difficult to get a good elbow scan. On a vertical field system, you can move the patient to the side and you can get the body part that you're wanting to image uh, in isocenter. And, Bill, and so, don't forget about the, sol- the solenoid. <laughs> Y'all are going to make fun of the way I pronounce stuff again, just like the last podcast. The coil <laughs> design. 
is the different. solenoid coil. Yes, you said it. And so the yes. coil design also is advantageous. It is one of the one of the interesting things about uh, so for some of the younger folks in the audience who may not know this, the uh, basic MR physics tells us that the B0 field and the B1 field, the RF field, be perpendicular to each other. And so on a cylindrical bore magnet, you have to have these flat planar coils, essentially, that can go, they're around the patient, but they don't tilt head to foot. You don't want to tilt them head to foot. You can go around them, around the patient, that's fine. But the direction of the magnetic field in, if you if you just have a flat planar coil, say, on the table, uh, looking at just the ones on the table, the direction of the uh, field of that coil is, is top to bottom, anterior to posterior, and uh, which is perpendicular to B0. But on a vertical field magnet, the coils have to wrap all the way around the patient. It's like a belt around the patient, and the direction of the field of that coil is head to foot. Uh, perpendicular to the anterior to posterior uh, B0 field. And the interesting thing about a solenoid coil design is it, by nature of its design, is essentially the same as a quadrature. So you get a little more, you get a more efficient receiving coil for the size and field strength being a being a solenoid design. It's It's inherently quadrature. Uh, which is about square root of two more efficient than a linear coil of the same size. The other thing is that the area of greatest uh, signal, the most the business part of the coil, highest signal, is going to actually be in the center of the coil. Whereas if you think about the just a standard flat planar coil on cylindrical bore, the brightest signal is always in the back. And sometimes that gave us fits years ago, well before the... Uh, the um, filtering software and stuff like that because the highest signal was in the back of the, you know, is, is right up against the patient's back. <clears throat> the other thing that, and this is what I wanted to get uh, Howard's remembrance on in this as well, is back in the 80s, uh, mid-80s, uh, in that marketing kind of realm when trying to convince people you really wanted to stay with so-called mid or lower field magnets. And that was because they would state, now keep in mind in 85, we had spin echo as a pulse sequence selection. And if you wanted, if the radiologist wanted, we could do a spin echo. But if they didn't have a preference, we're going to do a spin echo. I mean, that's all we had. We had inversion recovery, but it was a single slice. We never did that. But one of the benefits of field strengths less than one Tesla, say 0.6 Tesla on down, they said was much better musculoskeletal imaging. Uh, Howard, do you remember exactly why that was? I don't know that it was so much for T1 times of tissues. It, it, it might have been for lack of flow artifacts or something. I, I don't remember, but remember how musculoskeletal was always kind of lower field was touted for that. And I, I think there was some element of truth to that, and it comes back to the chemical shift. You have fewer artifacts at mm -hmm. lower field, some types of artifacts. And I've always actually personally liked some of those low field spine exams at one Tesla or so or 1.5 compared to 3T 
to be uh, honest with you. They just uh, somehow look better in some cases. Now, they take longer to acquire. There are you know, other trade-offs, but there certainly are some advantages for low field. And I think we'll be talking about you know, low field, uh, portable magnets and such like that later in the program today, uh, where you can't really use a high field uh, magnet. They just don't exist for portability sake. Well, there's, you know, to that point, I think when we talk about lower field systems, uh, and today most lower field systems uh, are going to be vertical field design, typically, or the phonar uh I think they refer to it as an upright MRI. And the phonar, uh, where the poles of the magnet are side to side on the patient, basically just think of a vertical field magnet turned on its side. And so the direction of uh, B0 is right to left, or so-called transverse field, Kristen mentioned earlier. Interesting thing about those phonar systems, because the field is transverse, you can use either a solenoid coil or a flat planar coil. I didn't know if y'all knew that. I wasn't aware of that until uh, some years ago when I was doing a lot of low field MR conferences and I, no, I found that I out. I actually did not know that until this moment. You taught me something. Well, Howard, did you know that? Did I? No, I did, did not know that, Bill. I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sure you'll sleep better tonight you because bet. of it. <laughs> but, uh, well, because if, if you think about it, in both a solenoid and a planar coil, because the field's transverse, you could use either one because they're they're both perpendicular to B0. Anyway, <clears throat> the other thing that was advantageous, and then I want to move on to some of the some of the systems that we have today, and let's kind of talk through them, was that um is the fact that you, that you have less artifacts. Uh you have less less flow artifacts. Chemical shift is not as big of a problem. In fact, you most of these systems, depending on how low they go, uh, will use an extremely narrow receiver bandwidth uh, to boost the SNR. Uh, depending on the vendor design, the user the receiver bandwidth may not actually even be user selectable. I've seen some uh, types of scanners, particularly low field extremity systems where the uh, receiver bandwidth is just kind of locked in you don't you don't mess with it and it's it's low and again there's no uh, minimal chemical shift and minimal minimal flow artifacts uh, Kristen like I said you had some experience with these uh, in your days at Phillips uh, what were your kind of takes on that I know you've said there's obviously some advantages to it but there, you, you must have seen some of those as well Absolutely. Um, you know, we had the um, 1.0 Tesla panorama, um, and that was very much um, marketed in two ways. It was, they really pushed the coils, and, and as far as the, the benefits, um, as you're saying, you know, the receiver bandwidth, which, you know, on Philips they call the water fat shift, um, those benefits definitely were pushed um, as far as if you're looking down the avenue, definitely of the, um, of the orthopedic avenue, um, you know, they really actually touted, it was interesting that they actually said you, you got much higher signal um, to noise ratio when you used the, now I'm embarrassed to say it, it's kind of like saying syringomyelia, um, the solenoid 
Coils. <laughs> they actually uh, really um, felt as though that was a huge advantage with the high field um, open, as they called it, um, the one Tesla panorama. So uh, they felt that together with, you know, the technology of the coils that it gave you without having, like you're talking about the flow artifacts or, you know, you know, the receiver bandwidth not being as the chemical shift, those things not being as much of an issue and the uh, advantages of um, that coil type that I can't pronounce today for some reason. Yeah. So that's all right. We'll know what you're talking about. Now, Howard mentioned something, uh, and if you're not familiar with this and, not that we're doing any kind of a, a plug for the product, but if you wanted to look it up, it's a, it's a, a truly a portable MRI. Uh, it's made by a company uh, based out of the Northeast, I believe. And uh, it's, the company is Hyperfine. Uh, the model name, they call it Swoop. And it is a uh, 64 milli Tesla which if you do the math is 640 gauss uh, <clears throat> permanent magnet. Currently it, it only has a head coil. So it's a transmit and receive head coil. And its purpose is to provide point of care uh, bedside. Uh, it has, has a little uh, flap that comes out. It's more than a flap. It's, sturdy and then you you know slide the patient uh, right at the, from the top of their bed just slide them up into the head coil and it does uh three or four pulse sequences they're all pre-programmed they're all they're all acquired as a 3d uh non-selective I, I would assume non-selective 3d and they you know you just using an ipad you tell it what imaging plane you want and there's really no centering or positioning. And the scans, you know, take about 15 minutes or so each. Uh, using uh, artificial intelligence enhanced reconstruction, the image quality is quite surprising, uh, especially given the very low field strength. Howard, what's been your first impressions of this? system i don't know if you've gotten to see it anywhere other than some of the demos and stuff at some of the shows yeah it's it's quite an interesting uh, uh option um it's portable to the extent you can roll it onto an elevator and move it around your hospital or your imaging center it can go right into the icu it doesn't need shielding because it's such a low field it plugs into a standard uh electrical outlet um but you know, so the the portability, the no, lack of need for shielding, and and no helium, which is nice, uh, all are strong pros uh, for this sort of technology. Uh, the, the cons that I've seen are, you know, the, the image quality is is good, but not fantastic. It doesn't have echo planar gradients, so you can't get diffusion, at least right now. Um, it's it is head only, and they don't have an MRA uh, sequence yet, so. You know, for stroke work, you'd certainly want diffusion and MRA. Um, and you know, well, then, yeah, go ahead. Well, let me tell you, it will do. It will do diffusion. It's a spin echo based diffusion. Oh, that's right. It does You're have right. a diffusion I stand corrected. You know, one thing though that you know the the these portable magnets that people don't think about until they've experienced it is you know it's the same thing with like the OR magnets like we used to have the o Odin Polestar, right? So 
people forget that when you know we don't the people on the call but <laughs> other people forget <laughs> that these things are noisy so here here for example is the odin i'm going to run it in the background here see if i can get it to go does that sound familiar oh yeah <laughs> yeah so take that into an icu or uh an operating room and, you know, there is a disadvantage there, and especially since the imaging time is longer for a full exam on a brain, it's, you know, it's closer to a half hour. Um, that may be disturbing for workflow in such an environment. I think there is a place for it. I, I saw a really interesting uh, talk at ASNR on one of these uh, uh, hyperfine magnets being used in Malwali uh, in Africa uh, to diagnose kids with cerebral malaria. You know, there's no other option there. Um, and it, they got very impressive uh, pictures uh, at point of care in a very rural area. Um, and if you have a network, it plugs in and you can send it for central reading. So I think uh, I think it's an interesting and exciting development. I did want to address the, the noise concerns because I uh, actually watched a demo on the floor, uh, well, not floor, show floor of uh, of the ASNR uh, in uh, where was that? Where were we, Howard? It was New York. New York. Yeah, yep. New York. The Big Apple, um, Bill. Big Apple. Big Apple. Yeah, I remember that. Um, now, anyway, the the sound at 0.64 uh, Tesla's really low. In fact, did did not require hearing protection because it's definitely below. 90 db um the other thing that's interesting about that uh system is at this point and i was talking with one of their engineers and they actually weren't aware of this so right now again if you haven't seen it you'll go online you'll see some pictures of it when they're wheeling it down the the hallway they have for all intents purposes this collapsible hula hoop around the, the po top pole of the magnet and it pulls out and it's probably extends, I don't know, six or seven inches from the side of the pole of the magnet. I mean, six out and that's their five gauss line. So the five gauss line is really close to the magnet, but we still got this international standard of five gauss to uh, keep people outside of that five, five gauss line. Uh, just because that's the standard. Anybody with, it, it's considered the magnetic field above which anybody with an active implant or device, uh, it might be uh, cause damage or might cause some harm. So that's always been our kind of line. But that's actually about to change in the next year, probably. Uh, the IEC is going to be changing that from 5 gauss to 9 gauss. I don't know, Howard, if you if you had heard that as well. Um, I wouldn't grouse about that. No, that would be good. <laughs> well, they you know they used the nine because they said that um, there's a margin of error that's possible. A lot of people are like, why didn't they just go to ten? You know, and so that was how it was explained to us. You know, why we're talking about um, you know the mobile MRI taking it up to the ICUs, um, having that, you know, current five gauss line hula hoop. Why don't we discuss, you know, there's some controversy on who should be operating these. You know, what, what do you guys think about that? Well, you know, you'll probably know where, where I stand. Uh, you know, I think, I think MRI 
if MRI is going to be utilized, it ought to be under the control of the MRI department. Um, but this is not kind of the way the thing is is marketed. Howard, your thoughts? Because certainly some safety things to consider. Absolutely. And, you know, we went through a lot of the same thoughts and discussions uh, when we put in our operative magnet uh, because we had great concerns not only about safety, but also uh, quality and training of the folks running the magnet. We wanted our MR techs, who are fabulous, uh, to be the ones running the magnet. And better than that, we wanted it in our department in radiology because we wanted to be able to have ourselves and the physicists available uh, immediately for some of these cases, um, whether they're directly done in the magnet or whether, uh, in our case, the patient is brought to the magnet from an adjoining uh, operating room suite. Uh, and so it, it was our choice uh, in that case to, to make sure uh, we ran it and that it was in the department rather than down in an OR somewhere used once every several weeks uh, by people who weren't used to using it and with unknown or unobserved safety considerations. There are places that do it well, uh, not run in an MR radiology department, but I I do have concerns based on the safety aspects. We've done a couple of site audits at sites that have uh, intraoperative MR, and typically they are in the OR suite. Uh, and they they do present some really interesting challenges, and you've got to have uh, MR, you know, kind of in control of that environment. Uh, when when the uh, depend and it depends on the type of uh, setup that you have. Uh, and I know we're jumping from a portable one to now something you'd have in the OR, which is uh, typically a higher field system, uh, usually one five Tesla, maybe possibly three. But the uh, one type, and Howard, you can tell us what type you have. The one type is is the type of system that is on a rail in the ceiling, and you've got these doors to one side. And so with the doors closed, you have an OR suite. The minute those doors open and that magnet comes out, you're now in a zone four environment. And, And it's important that when that happens and you get in that MRI zone four environment, that MRI personnel now are in charge of that environment. The surgeon can maintain charge of the patient, obviously, from a sterile standpoint and, and medical standpoint. But MRI has got to be in control of that environment because, you know, bad things can happen if if somebody's not paying attention to the MR safety component of that. I know, Kristen, you've had some experience where one of the facilities you worked at had a OR type system like that. Yeah, we did. We actually had an... Um we kept a, an MRI, we called it um, in, inside the garage doors. It was between OR1 suite and OR2 suite. And, and let me just say, it was the best run portion of our entire hospital. And Bill, you and I have actually witnessed this at a, a facility we went to out west one time. It was so controlled. It was a core group of people um, because everybody has a very specific role once you go into that environment and they have that role at different times. And so um, one of the suites was neuro, which was by far used the most for, you know, resection, debulking brain tumors and the pediatric facility. And the other one was used for rectal pull throughs and some orthopedic types of exams. 
So on the wall, it actually says zone three slash zone four, meaning when the garage doors are closed, then it's, you know, essentially just it's zone three. Um, then they count all the equipment, make sure everything's accounted for, make sure everything's tethered where it's supposed to be. Um, there's actually a, a mop that is a magnet that um, they roll around to make sure there's no metal shavings. And they have the sticky stuff that goes on the ground, like a, a floor mat or something that you would have that makes sure it gets all metal shavings off of your shoes. And um, then it becomes zone four. And um, that's, you know, when they open up the garage doors and, and scan the patient. So I, th I think the success to um, anything as far as the MR, some of these interoperative suites actually do regular patients when they're not using them for, um, you know, something um, related to the OR. But I, I think the most important thing is a very cohesive team. Um, the You cannot get into the... Um, MR console area or into the OR suite. It's, it, the doors are actually locked. Um, so no one can just come barging into any room whatsoever. And everybody up there is fully aligned with what their role is. I think it's one of the, um, the scariest types of environments to go into unless there's a lot of education. And, and that, you know, that starts with a, the, there's an MR safety timeout, full stop, final check. That's a lot. It's got to be paid so much attention to all the way down to how everything is accounted for prior to actually doing these scans as they're doing the different um, types of surgery. One of the sites we visited, I forget which one it was, they told us of a a joke they they played on new people that came in there you reminded me of the days when i was in x-ray school and you'd always tell the junior student you'd run out of a room and go quick go down to central sterile supply and get me a set of sterile fallopian tubes and the little senior junior student would go okay you know and goes down and asks for that but the uh one of the things that they do in a lot of these uh systems again depending on the size of the room and setup and stuff is that there are certain items when the doors open and the magnet comes out or it becomes the MRI environment, there are certain items that have to be pushed up against the wall. And Kristen mentioned tethering it to the wall. So uh, at this one facility, what they did when they had somebody that was new in there and just getting started and they were on their first procedure, they would tell them that, okay, so you got to stay in the room, but we have, you have to be tethered to the wall. And so they would get the, the, uh, the tech or the nurse, whoever it was, and they'd tether them to the wall and then they'd all get in the control room and laugh at them. Uh, I don't know, uh, Howard, you probably actually, never done anything. No, actually, they would take a picture of them. Um, yeah. And so, and then there was a wall of the the picture of all the new, um, you yeah. know, uh, PAs, <laughs> anesthesia assistants, so on and so forth. And so... Anybody um, that could talk into tethering to the wall. We need to would, tether you to the wall. We okay. to tether you, and then we're going to tether ourselves. And so we'll go ahead and show you how to tether yourself. And then they would take a, you know, Polaroid picture, and it would go on the wall. And I only know that because it's the site that I used to work at, that they would do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've had a, a lot of experience with our uh, OR magnet, and, you know, we decided... You know, the two flavors, of course, are the, the, the ceiling-mounted magnet that moves to you in the OR. That's usually an IMRIS system. Uh, but we chose to have a fixed magnet uh, across a shielded door to the OR, um, to a dedicated neuro-OR in this case. And, um, you know, of course, safety procedures, cleaning arrangements are important. But one reason we did that beyond safety 
is so that we could use the magnet. And it's actually one of our busiest magnets. It's a one five seventy centimeter. You can build these with three T's now. Um, and it's used not only for the cases where you move the patient still under anesthesia over and check to see how the tumor resection is going, but we also use that magnet for direct, say, epilepsy laser ablations. We use it for radiotherapy implants, uh, for uterine cancers and things like that. And it's actually one of our busiest magnets. And <clears throat> the workflow had to be set up so that, you know, if if an OR case is going on, you can still scan outpatients or inpatients. But the, the deal with the neurosurgeons is give us a one-hour heads up so we can do a terminal clean in that magnet. And then again, it does become part of the operating room. Uh, the only thing besides the patient that goes through uh, the door into the magnet is the ET tube. And we have, you know, a compatible ventilator. They roll across the line. They get hooked up again by anesthesia. And it's it's all pretty safe. You know, it's, that's really kind of an interesting point if anybody's listening that's, that's considering these things. Uh, you know, if you've got one that's mounted on a rail, you, you really probably don't use it for much except OR stuff. Uh, and, uh, in fact, one of the sites we went to, uh, because of the setup, they rarely use that magnet. And that was kind of problematic from a safety standpoint because, again, people not being familiar with that environment if they're not, if they're not doing it on, uh, you know, often. And so, you know, being able to use it in uh, standard, uh, you know, standard imaging would be, uh, would be much, much more preferred. Uh, Howard, you mentioned something about uh, therapy. And uh, in my notes here, I was going to ask you, uh, about what other types of procedures you, you see being done? And, and do you see any kind of shift away from the standard cylindrical bore design into other more vertical or? Hey, uh, don't you think I should be discussing my therapy? Your therapy. I'm just joking. We, we think you need therapy, <laughs> Kristen, for sure. I believe no, radiotherapy. Bill, Bill's talking about radiotherapy, not psychotherapy. Oh, I got a little confused there. <laughs> radiotherapy. But, I, yeah. but uh, I'm glad you asked that question. There, there are uh, movements, and we have a program of integrated MR-guided uh, radiotherapy which is, I think, really exciting uh, to be able to not only update uh, using a, a combined image uh, acquisition with MR at, in the same platform as the radiotherapy. This is usually done with uh, a, a split magnet. It's a, in our case, we have a 0.35 split magnet uh, that is centered on either side of the radiation therapy uh, Linac type uh, electron beam uh, um, accelerator that mm -hmm. gives the radiotherapy. And you can not only update things and target them, but you can even for, say, abdominal or pelvic malignancies, you have the ability to uh, to watch in real time and gate them so that you can actually follow the tumor as the patient comfortably breathes. And, you know, it may not sound, you know, super important, but it is super important because you want to target the lesion and spare the normal tissues around it. And I can tell you, having had radiation therapy to my pelvis myself, that it's not always comfortable. And you may have 
cramps or bladder spasms or something while you're supposed to be absolutely still. They get you in and line you up on your little tattoo and you're within a millimeter and then you move three inches because you're in pain. You know, this kind of uh, uh, combined therapy, integrated MR-guided radiotherapy, I think is really exciting um, and will be useful uh, for especially the the body cases. Um, so uh, that's that's coming along. It's, it's getting more popular. Um, there are even... Um, uh, uh, other developments in, for example, upright proton beam radiotherapy. You know, for some tumors, protons work better than uh, typical radiation therapy with uh, older sources. Uh, you can really target precisely uh, with those. And by doing these upright, you know, the protons come out of a linear accelerator. Usually you're kind of limited, but if the patient is upright, you can turn them to fine-tune where that's going. They can sit in a chair and be comfortable, hit them with protons. It's sort of like the analogy I've heard is, you know, if you want to change uh, a light bulb in your house, you you screw in the light bulb. You don't turn the house around the light bulb. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there are a lot of interesting developments in imaging-guided and alternate platform accelerators and combined MR uh, radiation therapy devices that I think uh, will be really, really helpful as we look over the next five to 10 years. I've, I've seen uh, the, or I've seen some stuff on the, uh, the Linux system and, and there's actually the linear accelerator one. And there's a, uh, there's, there's a lower field model uh, 0.35 or something like that, I believe. And then there's uh, there's a company now that's making one that's 1.5 Tesla, and and it's it's a different type of design so that you have the therapy part in the middle, and then you have this uh, the old style like there used to be an intraoperative, the so-called double donut magnet, where you the surgeons literally stood between the poles, and so you can project a mag you know you've got a magnetic field and you can project a gradient field on there. And then they have specialized radio frequency coils to to put on that patient as well. So very unique designs for these. Uh, for the upright thing, I don't know that I've seen anything upright with a magnet. So is that out there yet, Howard? Or I don't think so. Um, we're 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 to install in our new cancer center. We're going to put in a, a upright proton beam, which I think may be the first in the country, uh, but that's going in in 2024. And we'll be asking everyone listening for a donation to the Cancer Center a little bit later. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's, you know, some really interesting stuff coming coming down the pipe on this. Now, when, when we talk about, um, let's talk a little bit about gadolinium use uh, and in, so, for example, so let's say we've talked about a whole wide range of things here. So if you've got, uh, say, for example, one of these uh, ultra-low field uh, systems, do you think just for that one alone, we'll start there and we'll kind of work through some of these. What do you see as utility for, for gadolinium-based contrast agents in a point-of-care type system? Well, as as you know, uh, and most listeners know, the uh, the relaxivity, the extent to which things uh, are changed by gadolinium, changes with magnetic field. And in general, as you go from say one point five T to three T, 
the relaxivity actually goes down for a typical agent. Um, and contrary-wise, uh, as the field strength goes lower, you actually get higher relaxivity for up to a point for most of the agents. Um, so that's a good thing because at low field, you're dealing with uh, challenges in signal-to-noise and contrast-to-noise ratios. But even so, say, take the example that we talked about earlier, the hyperfine magnet at, it, I think it's 0 0.064 Tesla. Uh, it's um, it's a challenge from what I understand to see enhancing lesions. So, you know, relaxivity becomes critically important at low field for these uh, combined uh, platform machines like the radiotherapy. If you need gadolinium, you'll want to use a high relaxivity agent and the highest one on the market is gadobenate or multihance. It may be, uh, I've read articles about an upcoming agent uh, that has about double the relaxivity. It's around an R1 of 12 uh, that, that uh, may be uh, available in the next year or two. Uh, that would be really attractive for low field, uh, where, for instance, uh, the the R one uh, uh, at at zero six four. If you look at the Larmor frequencies and where you need to target the, uh, the R one relaxivity, you need that. You know, uh, say R one of twelve that you might get with this new agent that's not available and. We don't know how it'll behave, but it, it's called ghetto piclinol. Um, that would be the sort of thing we'd be, anticipate would be very, very useful at low field. One of the, one of the reasons uh, some of some of the listeners may not may not be aware of this. When one of the reasons why MRA so time of flight MRA and gadolinium enhancement, one of the reasons why low field can be very problematic is as you go down in field strength, T1 times uh, shorten, they get faster, things recover faster. And one of the really challenge, real challenges in doing time of flight MRA at lower field is the fact that the background tissue recovers very quickly. So it's very hard to saturate something that keeps recovering really quickly. It's much easier. This is why the minute, the, the first time I ever saw a circular will is time of flight on a 3t i thought oh my lord and then you see one at seven tesla and it's like oh wow that's just beyond beautiful signal is one thing spatial resolution signal certainly but the background tissue is recovering much more slowly at higher field and so when you're trying to see contrast between either inflowing blood or what we've been talking about uh gadolinium enhancing lesion you're kind of fighting the background, which is giving you higher signal. So you're going to need higher signal from the lesion to offset that increased signal from the from the background. Is that kind of the take home lesson I got from that? Yeah, I think so, Bill. And you know, with MRA, uh, we haven't seen much MRA at low field, and I think it's for the reason you just mentioned that the recoveries are so quick. But maybe you could do what we do at at 1.5 and 3T, if you had a really potent um, uh, gadolinium agent that could shorten T1 much more rapidly, uh, conceivably, you could you could get MRA more effectively at, at with these low field uh, magnets being used, let's say, for proton therapy in a uh, AVM or something, and you wanted to be able to see all the nidus vessels. 
So these, this is all theoretical, and I'm going to deny it if anybody asks I said it. <laughs> Don't well, hold I think to we're going to volunteer for you to actually do a study on it. <laughs> all right, I'll, I'll, I'll volunteer. I've got a lot of radiation already. <laughs> no, a little bit more you doesn't can matter. Do it on a, <laughs> I didn't mean yourself. I just meant, no, no, it would be interesting to find out the results of that. Um, you know, Bill, what you said, actually, I, I wouldn't have expected that to have come out of your mouth. It actually made a lot of sense. <laughs> and um, Sometimes it happens. It does. No. And then Howard actually concurred. So I, I think I, I think you make a really good point about that and the recovery of tissues. And then if you had a really high relaxivity agent, which we, we know, you know, it's again, not FDA approved, but we've all read about it in different areas. You know, if once that 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 you know comes to be a product, it's gonna it's gonna be a game changer, in my opinion. And then when you talk about a game changer in multiple ways, then you also really have to apply that to you know a high field open, uh, you know, maybe a lower field um, open vertical vertical open, field. I said open <laughs> myself, didn't I? Okay, I'm done. For yeah, the day. you did. I'm done. Well, and keep in mind, as long as we're talking about radiotherapy. Even today, especially today, you know, with stereotactic radiosurgery where you may treat anywhere from one to, I've seen, you know, more than a dozen lesions uh, treated or with uh, hippocampal sparing radiotherapy uh, protocols where, say, you have a lung cancer and you're either really high risk or you have one or two mets, you can do whole brain radiotherapy sparing the hippocampus. So you spare a memory function, but if you're going to do that, you want to be really confident you don't have any small metastases in your hippocampi. So that's where, you know, today a uh, high relaxivity agent like uh, Multihance is, is, would be preferred or say even a triple dose of something like Prohance that's uh, approved for triple dose. Or once this new high relaxivity agent comes out, I think we're going to be looking at a really uh, strong indication for it uh, in the radiotherapy world. Since some of the uh, kind of maybe just we end end on this topic, come back to some of the some of the low field, uh, lower field, vertical field systems, uh, which are used a lot for MSK. Uh, they they do quite I think they do quite good MSK work. Again, like I said, especially with a lot of the uh, newer uh, software uh, for. Uh, AI assisted uh, reconstruction. Uh, you know, I know Siemens has got a uh, introduced an eighty centimeter bore uh, superconducting system. Actually, it uses uh, the newer type of magnet technology that doesn't doesn't require excessive amounts of, of helium, and it's at 0.55 Tesla. And uh, some of the stuff I've seen off that is just phenomenal. The the use of gadolinium in MSK. So, Howard, do you think relaxivity actually has any benefits in MSK? And then you know, relaxivity is relaxivity, but you know, a higher relaxivity agent I think has been shown to be very beneficial in breast, MR, angiography, brain, you know, spine, stuff like that. But what about in musculoskeletal? I mean, not everything needs high relaxivity or higher relaxivity. I would imagine. Sure. Certainly not. Things like arthrography would be a really good example where you're going to use, uh, say, a tenth of an ml of a standard agent and be able to see that joint compartment very well. When you talk about enhancing spine lesions, maybe. 
high relaxivity for tumors or things like that or drop metastases in a combination head and total spine exam, uh, or maybe even in some cases a spinal infection, maybe the high relaxivity is going to help. But I haven't seen any controlled crossover trials on that. One thing I think we were going to at least touch on is the upright or vertical magnets where you can scan people standing up or sitting in a chair and look at their disc bulges and things like that in a more natural everyday position, the effects of gravity. Uh, I think that's an exciting uh, use for the upright uh, technology. I've seen I've seen several you know papers on that going back on the years because the upright system that made by Phonar has been around for quite some time, and uh, yeah, there's like a huge difference. I remember in long time ago before the Phonar system, there was this contraption that they had uh, that you put in a regular magnet you put around their feet. I don't know if Howard, do you remember this? It's, it was like a sling that you put it around their feet and then you tied it up to their waist and it had a crank on it that put pressure on the feet that simulate the uh, simulated standing. Do you remember that odd looking contraption? looks like I had your lower body in a sling or something. People didn't like that, but it does, rem- yeah, no. <laughs> it does remind I me remember of that. Reminds me of uh, NPR's Dr. Science, speaking of gravity, that he had a call-in show and uh, somebody called in one day and said, you know, Dr. Science, when I look at the globe here on my desk, I just have to wonder, you know, people in South Africa and Australia, why don't they fall off the earth? And he laughed and said, well, you know, that's a common misconception. People are falling off all the time. (laughs) Maybe that's maybe that's why that my friend in Australia never returns my call. There, there could be other reasons, Bill. Yeah, I was about okay. to say um, what friends, but that's okay. Um, no, I, I <laughs> we used to use something called for flexion and extension um, on the horizontal floor magnets, um, and this was, you know, like Bill was saying, the uh, the stand up upright magnets that they've been out for quite some time, but it was called a zoom technique. And it was it was not reliable at all um, when we were trying. And, and then I know that, um, and I won't mention her name, but there was someone that was at Baylor and also at Nashville that used to do a lot of weight bearing techniques. And and Bill, I, I know that you know who I'm talking about. And she would do a lot of talks on the weight bearing techniques. And so, um, but I think that the upright has a, a lot to do with that. And then you know, wh- you know, how are you talking about? you know, the therapy along with that. So, you know, perhaps, you know, that's going to really be maybe more of a niche area, but a a really important area in the future. One area where we already do flexion and extension uh, for our mostly pediatric uh, neurosurgeons is in the evaluation of Chiari 1 malformations. People who have low tonsils and sometimes get a syrinx. Um, There's some evidence that that may be aggravated if not only your frame and magnum is narrowed because of the tonsils being too low, but also there may be craniocervical instability. So part of our Chiari 1 protocol is actually to do uh, you know, gentle flexion and extension in the magnet within the coil, uh, within the limits, and um, you know, to look for translation, AP translation. And if that's present, I'm told that the, the surgeons are more likely to, you know, on the balance, recommend a correction so that that frame of magnum stays open after decompressive craniectomy. 
You know, that's really um, interesting to know as well, because most places just look, um, <laughs> I'm having pronunciation issues today, the cerebellum <laughs> tonsils, if they aren't descended too low, then most places just do a CSF flow study. Um, Cause if it ain't showing, it ain't flowing, I believe is what Bill says. Um, and so hearing that you're doing that slight flexion extension actually is a, another added layer that could be really important in the decision-making process. And beyond the pictures, if you use something like space or cube uh, T2, uh, ungated, intentionally not gated by cardiac, you'll, you'll see the CSF phasing, and uh, you can get, you know, in a two minute scan, you can get some really nice CSF flow information. Is it there ventrally? Is it, you know, dampened dorsally, et cetera. And we use that routinely for aqueductal patency and third ventriculostomies and things like that. It's a really nice adjunct to those Chiari 1 exams. Well, I think we've had some pretty good discussions here today. I'm going to ask each of you for your parting thoughts here. Uh, I'll I'll give you mine. Uh, one of the other things that uh, has to be taken into consideration when you're looking at doing patients uh, outside of the standard cylindrical bore one five three T systems, so lower field, whether it's cylindrical bore or vertical, is the the importance of having an MR radiologist uh, who is well versed in MR safety. Uh, because any patient with an implant or device is going to be technically off-label uh, in most scenarios because implants and device testing is really only defined for cylindrical bore magnets, and most device manufacturers will only test them at 1.5 and or 3, and 3T because that's what the majority is out there. The other systems just don't make up a large majority doesn't mean you can't do these implants and devices. It's passive implants and devices really aren't that big of a deal. Actives gets a little bit tricky, but it does, you know, if you're going to serve the patient population and you're going to have one of these types of magnets, you really have to be well-versed in MR safety. And I think that's something that, uh, you know, sites should keep in mind. It doesn't mean you can't do them. You just better know a lot about understanding of MR safety so you can perform a adequate risk-benefit analysis and best serve your patients. So that's my kind of last-minute thought on this. Uh, Kristen, I'll, Howard, you go. I'll go. I'll go, because um, Howard's the best at, at closing these things out. Um, you know, just I definitely want to just reiterate what you said. I, you know, I even made the mistake during this podcast, and I apologize, but you know, let's think about actually what these magnets are. Are they cylindrical, i.e. horizontal? Are they vertical? Um, are they the upright, um, the transverse? Based upon, you know, the way the fields are oriented, um, the Bill did a great job of talking about the coil advantages when you're talking about, you know, a vertical field magnet. Um, and um, I really, Bill, I actually thought that was very just off the cuff and not rehearsed and not scripted you discussing uh, the T1 recovery of the background tissues and the benefits of using um, a higher relaxivity gadolinium-based contrast agent. Um, probably one of the most impressed moments of uh, my career knowing you. I'll send you, I'll send you a bill for it. And um, uh, Bill, yeah, okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> um, you'll be looking for that payment. 
Um, and then also, you know, just about the different therapy techniques. I, I don't think people realize just how special you are, Howard. Um, and um, just that you have such exposure. And I don't even think you realize it. And I'm really not. I'm not kissing up here. I mean, you, you really he, uh, he got in trouble for exposure a while back. I haven't used another term <laughs> right. for you. Bill, this was, this was my moment, okay? I think okay, we've got to go now. <laughs> yeah. No, and, and just what you said, I, I feel like I really am kissing up to both of you here. But uh, just uh, talking about the, the therapy and how it applies and where it's advantageous based upon, you know, the type of magnet you're using and, um, you know, whether it's, a lower field, a higher field, and whether with the orientation of the magnet. And then my final thought is that I just want to let everyone know that I'm going to work on my program with Hooked on Phonics all weekend. So the next time <laughs> we do a podcast, I might actually be able to pronounce some of the larger words. <laughs> well, Kristen, no, uh, you can rest assured only a sullen nerd would <laughs> criticize you for how you pronounce solenoid. <laughs> Thanks so much. My confidence is just going up and up. Better sell now. <laughs> so, Howard, other than your exposure incident, anything you want to close with? No, I just think, um, you know, we do need to think outside the box and think about what our patients are going through. Obviously, that's why we're doing this stuff. And, you know, some of these modifications make it easier, better, less claustrophobic. And ultimately, when we match it up with therapy, it's going to be uh, safer and more effective and improve uh, survival and quality of life. So uh, it's super important to, to pay attention to the developments. And as we've emphasized, have some real MR experts involved, uh, whether it's just just in quotes imaging or uh, something more advanced like we've talked about today. Well, that's awesome. I can't thank you both enough for your time uh, spent with us today. I know, hope the least listeners are going to enjoy it as much as we did enjoy it. We want to thank everyone for listening. Again, thank Bracco for their sponsorship through an unrestricted educational grant. We do appreciate their uh, support. So that's going to bring us to an end for this one for today. We hope everybody out there has a great rest of your day, if, unless you've got other plans. We're out of here. You're just going to have to get over it. See you next time. You've been listening to MRI Cast. This program is made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Bracco Diagnostics. <laughs>